stay there. You know what? I believe that every single person on this planet can make a difference. And I believe that we all have something to offer, something that's so unique that it will change somebody else's life. I believe we all deserve to step into our true selves. And I believe that every single person needs to feel great about themselves. I want you to step into who you truly are and I want you to make a difference for somebody else and for yourself. And I don't think it's that hard. It's a matter of putting one step in front of the other and just taking action. And I'm interviewing guests that have done just that. I'm Karen Vaughan. This is the Get Off The Bench podcast. And here is where you can make that decision to make your life count. It all starts with you saying yes. Hey there, and welcome back to another week of the Get Off The Bench podcast. Now, this week, I am talking with one of my favourite humans on earth. I've got so much admiration for him, Dr. John Martini, and he is incredible. I first met him, well, it would have been maybe 15 years ago or maybe even more, but I've, I've done the breakthrough experience with him and I've met him on a couple of other occasions. But some of his teachings have really changed my life and I just can't wait for you to hear what he's got to say today and particularly about values. When you hear about values and why they're so important to us and how we find them and how we um, apply them in our lives, you're going to be blown away and it will make all the difference to you. So hang in there and listen to the whole thing because because it is mind-blowing and fantastic. And we might even mention Athena Starwoman too. So listen up for this one. Let me tell you about John. Dr. Martini is considered one of the world's leading authorities on human behavior and personal development. And he is the founder of the Martini Institute. His trademarked methodologies in human development, the Martini method and the Martini value determination, the culminations of over 47 years of cross-disciplinary research and study and utilised in all human development industries across the world. Dr. Martini travels 360 days a year to countries all over the globe where he shares his research and findings in all markets and sectors. He's the author of 40 books published in 29 different languages, and he has produced over 60 CDs and DVDs covering subjects such as development in relationships, wealth, education, and business. He's also created 72 different courses designed to assist people to activate leadership and empower all seven areas of their life, financial, physical, mental, vocational, spiritual, family, and social. You are absolutely going to love this. So let's get him on. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. I was looking forward to our interview. Thank you. Oh, me too. You just you're you're an incredible man. You, I, I want to go through so many things that you do, but you you blow my mind. And the thirty thousand books is one thing. I'm going to get to that. But you just you're just so in tune with so much, and I, I love you. I have for a long time. Well, thank you. Thank you. I. I uh... I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to do what I love every day. And that, that really does make a difference in life. So getting to do what you love and love what you do every day does make a difference. John, I absolutely agree with you. That's I do what I love every single day. And it is the, the, the joy that fills your heart is just incredible compared to slugging it out nine to five for a job you don't like to do. Well, some people have a quiet life of desperation, as Thoreau said. They have a Monday morning blues, yep. Wednesday hump days. Thank God it's Fridays. Week friggin' ends. <laughs> and, 
and they have a schizophrenic life where they work doing something that they don't love doing mm. to pay bills, to then take a break, take a vacation or retire to get away from that so they can go blow their money. And they never got to do what they love and get paid for it. Yeah. Where they have, uh, they tap dance to work and get paid handsomely to do something they love to do. And so they don't need to take a break. They, they have a love for what they do so much that it's like break. I'll delegate to other people. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I do get off the bench. I'm trying to inspire so many people to get up and do their thing and do what they love to do. And, you know, there's always the blockages, you know, the self-doubt and the imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff, which is human human stuff. But um, I reckon just that bit of courage and getting over the hump, you know, <laughs> and then get on with your life. It's it's bloody marvellous. But Can I, can I share a story, a funny story? Yep. I was speaking in... Hua Hin, Thailand, many years ago. And um, I was speaking at a summit for um, spas and health. Yeah. So there's a Four Seasons, the Ritz Carlton, these big hotels that had spas were all there. And I was the keynote speaker. And when I got picked up at the airport, I got picked up by Miss Thailand. <laughs> she was stunning. So, you know, I, it doesn't get much better now. I thought I had to pinch myself. Did I die? Is this the afterlife? You know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> I got taken over in a nice uh, limo over to Hua Hen, you know, and, and, and not a, a fly over there, but a limo from the airport there to this beautiful, magnificent um, resort. I mean, if you're going to have a spa resort for all these high-end things, you got to have a nice resort. So it's a beautiful resort. Waterfalls, orchids, Thailand's. The people are lovely, you know, yep. first class service. And I was getting ready to do my presentation and they had a, I had a press conference beforehand. And there's about 40 different medias there with microphones and people asking questions and that kind of thing. And I'm standing on there and I just spent the last day with this beautiful girl. And I'm sitting in this, this stairs where there's waterfalls coming down with orchids everywhere looking out over a beach where there's people walking by with hardly anything on. And, uh, and I'm at this resort being taken care of like in first class and getting paid to go and speak to her. It doesn't get much better now. <laughs> and all of a sudden this, this lovely lady says, Dr. Martini, I look at your schedule. You very busy, very busy man. Work very hard. And says, what do you do to chill out? <laughs> And I said, and, and what do you do for vacation and to chill out? And I said, I'm looking and I'm and I'm hearing waterfalls. I'm seeing orchids. I've got Miss Thailand. I've got people going up and down the thing with barely any clothes on in these things. So I'm looking at beauty and, and attractiveness. I'm being taken care of in this first class resort. I'm getting paid handsomely. And she's asking, what do I do for vacation? <laughs> and I and I'm looking, I'm going. Does she not see the obvious? And I said, ma'am, my life is a friggin' vacation. I don't need to get away from this. I don't need to escape it and chill out. This isn't stressful. When you're doing something that's really, really deeply meaningful, that you're inspired to do, that you're living by design instead of duty, and you can't wait to get up in the morning and do that, yeah. you don't have a need to chill out. Yeah. Your vocation, vacation are one and the same thing. Yeah. And a lot of people don't grasp that they can structure their life that way and work towards that outcome. 
I've taught thousands of people that. But most people believe extrinsically that these things out there run their life, and therefore they look for extrinsic sources to get their life better instead of look within. Yeah. So getting off the bench is really what it's about. Yes. Well, let's help people do that, John. And I love that story. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> uh, I haven't had the um, I haven't had the cascading waterfalls yet, but I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> and Miss Thailand, maybe that's pretty good. Doesn't <laughs> get much better now. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, my partner's going to smack me around the head for saying that, but yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. John, you're considered the, um, well, I'll say, the, you know, one of the world's leading authorities on human behaviour, personal development, and I've attended, I've attended some of your uh, things and absolutely loved it. To be, to be honest, I don't even know where half of this stuff comes from. Your mind is just incredible. But, you know, there's got to be a journey in that. So, so what was it like for you as a kid? Were you just, you just in books and, 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 and an extreme academic no, just the opposite. Uh, when I was born, I had my arm and leg turned inward. Oh. I had a deformity of that. And I had to wear braces from age one and a half to four on my arm, left arm and left leg. Oh. And I also had to go to a speech pathologist because no matter what I was doing, I wasn't making sounds properly. And so I, I remember having strings and buttons in my mouth and practicing all these exercises as a kid. When I got to five... Uh, in kindergarten class, uh, the teacher put the boys there and they had to draw army and wars and cars. And the girls were drawing, you know, trees and houses and sunsets and stuff. And I, for some reason, I, being Italian, I guess I like the chicks more than the guys. I don't know what it is. I, I figured I'd corner the market while the guys are over there drawing conflict. And uh, the teacher saw me with the girls and said, you are a boy, you need to do this and put this black and red crayon and you need to draw army and wars. And I just wasn't into army and wars and cars. I, I haven't driven a car in 32 years. Wow. <laughs> I, don't wow. Do, I don't do cars. So uh, I, the teacher said, well, if you're, if you're not going to play with the boys, I'm not going to let you play with the girls. You're going to be sitting in the middle of the room playing with yourself, basically. And um, so I was destined to be in the middle path, you might say, yep. the synthesis of the pairs. Yep. And I was destined to want to be on the go because when I was four, I got out of my braces. I just wanted to be on the go. I didn't want to be constrained. Mm. And I had speech problems. And I think that led to eventually wanting to learn how to speak properly. So everything that goes on in our life is really ultimately on the way, not in the way, if we look at it through a different set of eyes, different lens. Yep. Then I got to first grade and the first grade teacher said, tried to teach me how to read and that just wasn't working. I didn't get any meaning. I didn't get to pronounce words properly. I couldn't spell. It was a mess. So my teacher said, you know, you got to go to a remedial reading. And then eventually I had to wear a dunce cap, me and Daryl Dalrymple. And my, my parents came to the school and my teacher said, I'm afraid your son's never going to be able to read. He's not going to be able to write. He's not going to be able to communicate effectively. He's probably not going to go very far or amount to much, but he likes running for some reason, because when I got out of the braces, I just wanted to run. So put him into sports. At least he'll excel at something because he's good at running. So she cared, but she, you know, told my parents what it is. So I had learning problems. And the only way I made it to elementary school is learning how to ask questions to the smartest kids. And they would tell their, their ego would be fed and they would tell me what they learned from the books and from the classes and everything else. And that gave me enough information to kind of pass. 
And that worked till I was 12. I, I made it, I scrouched by, but man, my parents moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas. We lived in a very low socioeconomic area in a country area. <clears throat> there was not any smart kids. And I didn't have anybody to ask questions to. And so I ended up dropping out of school. I failed and dropped out of school and started living on the streets when I was 13. Mm. So I was a street kid from 13 uh, to 18. But I didn't stay in, in Richmond, Texas. I didn't like it there. It wasn't it was too much racial issues and all kinds of beatings and fightings and shootings. And so I left because I picked up surfing and Texas was not a surf capital. You need to have a hurricane to surf there. So I ended up hitchhiking to California when I was 14 and down into Mexico. And at 15, I made it to Hawaii on the North shore and I wanted to ride the biggest waves in the world. So I lived under a bridge and then into a park bench and under a, in a bathroom and then an abandoned car. And I just kept social climbing. And, um, I was living on the North shore of Oahu until I nearly died at 17, almost 18, just right before my 18th birthday. And um, in the recovery of that, because I was unconscious for three and a half days after some things that happened there. And in the recovery of that, I ended up at a little class and there was a speaker there named Paul C. Bragg. And he spoke that one night and man, I never heard anybody speak like this guy. He inspired me to believe that maybe just maybe, I could someday become intelligent, learn how to read and become, um, overcome my learning problems. Never thought that was going to happen. I just assumed what the teacher was saying was right. Mm -hmm. I figured I excel in baseball and sports. So I'm going to do surfing. And, um, that was my fate. I was going to make surfboards and live on the North shore and just ride big waves. That was where I was headed. But this night, everything just went boom, new trajectory. And I decided that that night in a vision after him speaking, that I wanted to overcome my learning problems and figure out how to do this. And with what he said, I, I, I had new invigoration to do that. And I started on a journey to try to do that. I went back and took a GED, which is a high school equivalency test and miraculously guessed and passed. I tried to go back to school and I failed. I got a 27 instead of a 72 to pass. I didn't, I failed miserably and I almost gave up on it. And my mom said to me one time when she saw me crying in the living room, she said, what happened, son? I said, I failed the test. I got 27. I needed a 72. There's no way I'm going to pass this thing. I guess I'll never read. I'll never write. I'll never communicate. Never mount a thing. Never go very far in life. I just recited what the first grade teacher said. And my mom put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher like you dream and overcome your learning problems, or whether you go back and ride giant waves, or you return to the streets and panhandles of bum, I just want to let you know that your dad and I are going to love you no matter what you do, son. We just love you. Mm. And she said the right thing at the right time. And my hand went into a fist. And I saw the vision of the night I was with Paul Bragg about being a teacher and learning. And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading, studying, and learning. I'm going to master this thing called teaching and, and, and healing and philosophy. And, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on this planet stop me, not even myself. I got up, I hugged my mom, I went in the room, I got a dictionary out, and I started memorizing 30 words a day, spelling it, pronouncing it, putting it in a sentence, get the meaning, and my mom would test me on 30 words a day. I wasn't allowed to go to bed until those were done, and I didn't. I had a flawless recital of those 30 words, and I did that every single day until my vocabulary started to take off, and I found myself 
within months passing and literally before the end of the year starting to excel. And I then end up in the top of the class. And then I just started learning to read and I just went nuts on reading. When I found out I could read, wow, I never stopped. I started doing literally 18 to 20 hours a day of reading. Wow. And I, I kept getting faster and faster and faster. And eventually now it's over 30,600 and something, you know, books. And I just never stopped reading. I, I read every day like clockwork. Wow. What a story. There have been so many people I've met, you know, that have been told they were no good, you know, and told told at school that they never make it, they'd never become anything. And and and, and it's funny because a lot of those kids excel, like, like don't just get a job. You know, they excel when they, I don't know, must be when they hit that sort of turning point that you hit. You know, the, there's that fork in the road where you get to make that choice, you know, and it's something comes from within and just drives you forward. I, I love that. Well, when I had a, when I had, when I was at the first little college, I was in the library studying and I took a break to do some yoga because I'd picked up yoga in Hawaii and I was just doing, you know, just, I, I, that's how I didn't sleep. I just did yoga and sat in this yoga mudra position. And, um, I was doing this yoga and all of a sudden this 375 pound Afro-American woman came up to me and said, can you teach me whatever you're doing? Oh, wow. <laughs> and I looked at her and I thought, hey, no freaking way, man. That's not, she's not going to be able to do it. I was the skinniest guy in the class and I attracted the opposite, the heaviest woman in the class. And uh, I said, I'll do what I can. So my first student was a 375 pound Afro-American woman who wanted me to teach her yoga. And that was Hatha Yoga which I was doing in meditation. Now she was an inspiring soul, but she couldn't even bend over and touch her toes by any means because she's too big. But that was my first student I ever had that ever asked me to share something of knowledge with somebody. And that was so inspiring to have somebody want me to share something. Yeah. And, and now, you know, that's a lot of people, but, um, that was so meaningful. And I, I still have the same inspiration today as I did then of being able to research and learn something worthy enough for somebody else to want to know it. Yeah. And that's what I live for. Sharing ideas that can make a difference in people's lives that inspire me to want to learn and inspire me to want to share. And those are the two things I love doing, you know, teaching, researching, and writing. That's, that's, that's what I do every day. Yep. Well, I'm not far behind you, except <laughs> I did the same, teaching, researching, and writing. I absolutely love it. I didn't do enough writing. But, yeah. you know, what? I remember hearing you talk about um, when you went to college that you had like a, I don't know whether you called it an open university or free university or something, and you used to go to coffee shops you know, and, and teach people whatever you'd read for the day. When I was at the University of Houston, which is two years after starting back to school, I used to do yoga under this little park tree area. And um, it was kind of a place where everybody was walking through the park on the way to the next classes and stuff. So it was a good center. And I used to have this little spot that's kind of private that I could do my yoga. And I, I love doing that and have an apple afterwards. So I was doing my yoga and, and people were having lunch and watching me. It was right at the lunch period. And sooner later, people started coming up and sitting in the grass and asking me questions, you know, how long you've been doing this, that, you know, that kind of stuff. And that started to grow. And, and within a short period of time, 
100, 125, 150, some days up 400 people were gathered at lunch each day, unless it was raining. And when it was raining, they'd follow me into the cafeteria. I had them in the cafeteria. We'd fill up the cafeteria. And I started doing classes and just answering questions, whatever questions came. And if I didn't know, I would go research it and say, I'll see you tomorrow and come back and I'll have your answer. And I loved it. And then when I went on to professional school, I started teaching. I used to get up at two o'clock and read till 6.30 and knock out four to seven books because by then I was speed reading. And then I would jog and come back, shower and go to school. And then every night at 7 to 10 p.m., whatever I read that morning, I would do a presentation on. And um, I had a small one-bedroom apartment, but I could get 30 people in that frigging place. They would just stand, sit, whatever it is. And I was doing classes and it started out as a love donation, you know, a little bowl. Well, nobody loved me. I didn't get any money. And then I put minimum love donation, five bucks, minimum love donation, 10 to 20, and eventually 20 friggin' dollars. And people started paying. And I'd make, you know, $360 a night. I made $100,000 a year teaching when I was 23. Wow. I, was, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, just doing classes six and seven nights a week. And so I, uh, I, I knew that I, I found my element and I never stopped. I just, when I graduated from professional school, I, I did that every night again. I just kept doing it, but now I did it in a place where there was more, more people. And I started doing radio and television and I started doing more things and expressing more things. And then it went around the city and then state and the nation. And now it's all over the world. I've been in 170 countries speaking. Of. Wow. How many people have you presented to? Well, it depends on what we base it on. If we base it on a, a live presentation, that's uh, X number of million. But if we do radio, television, newspapers, magazines, podcasts, uh, I write for 1,530 magazines around the world. Uh, so if, if I take all of that, it's it's a lot of people. There's billions now. We've reached billions of people. Wow. Billions of people. How, do you, how do you write for that many magazines? <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, well, sometimes they get syndicated and they get pushed out to different things. And sometimes I'm writing individuals. Sometimes they're interviewing and we're doing a, a thing and I final edit it. There's all types. But I've got to, I've got to, I keep records of everything. I Everything I set out to do, I keep records of. So every podcast, you're already in the document. You know, I document every podcast and every radio. And uh, we look at how many people it's probably reaching. If we do it again, we cut that number in half. I've got a whole system for metricing uh, how many people we reach. Wow. And um, yeah, plus we've done wow. uh, we've done uh, fifty four movie. Well, the fifty fourth movie is coming up. Uh, so and the movies reach out. You know, Secret went out, reached a lot of people, and yeah. Opus reached a lot of people, and The Compass reached a lot. Of, so all these vehicles. I mean, sometimes I get to do podcasts for fifty million people at a time. Wow. So we, we reach a lot wow. of people. So yeah, all those things add up, and you you know what you impact is maybe micro little ideas. Mm. And sometimes it's not much at all, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it, it reaches more than we ever imagined. I, I, yeah. I just keep doing it every day. You know, I do. I do podcasts every. You know, I, I can do more than ten or twenty podcasts in a week, and that reaches millions every week. Yeah. So, and and ultimately, you only have to reach. I, I mean, I, of course, you want to reach millions, but ultimately, if each podcast you do changes one life, do you, you know? And then they expand. you made a difference. A big difference, yeah. yeah that's incredible. So when you when you're reading your thirty thousand books, like you've read thirty thousand six hundred books, 
I don't, I can't even fathom that because when I, when I was at school, I was like you. I used to ask all the other kids. I didn't read. After grade two, my teacher left and I hated school and I, I didn't read ever. And, and I used to suck people in and I'd say to the smartest kids, what happened? What do you think happened? And I, when you were saying it, I thought that's exactly what I did. I, I didn't even read one I did book. that. Yeah. When I, was, when I was 17, right before I, I nearly died, uh, there was a guy named Jackie Royd, who is a friend of mine today. My daughter and family, well, my daughter, oldest daughter knows him. And I, he didn't even realize it until many, many years later, like six years ago. Because he used to say, you know, he used to ask me to read to you. And he never could understand why I asked him. I want you to read. I love the way you read. I would encourage. I said, you sound, your voice is so great. Everything I just because I want to hear what they had to say. And he remembers that. He says, I, I always thought it's peculiar. You never read. You always asked us to read. And I, I said, it's because I couldn't read. And, he's, and he goes, wow, you've come a long way since then. Now you read, read, read. But, mm. but that was a very, very moment, a, a, an inspiring moment to actually make a decision. That I want to change that situation. Mm. And then the actual time when I actually got to read and have somebody ask me for something that was like a dream. And then I was just determined to go and learn so I could share because mm. it, it meant so much to be able to, from being told, you know, that you're a dunce and then all of a sudden saying, thank you for sharing me with that idea. That's, I think that's the most fulfilling thing we have. I'm sure you understand in, in your life the same way when you make some sort of statement and it touches somebody's lives or life and, and they go, thank you. And you get a tear in your eye, a tear of gratitude for the opportunity to be able to do what you love doing. Yeah. It's very inspiring. Very, very. How, how do you how do you keep all that information in like that? To me, that's I read, I read books, like I've written two books, but I read books like it's a movie. I have to unfold a movie while I'm reading, and I'm so slow. So when when if I if I was speed reading, I, I wouldn't be able to hold the information. How do you how do you hold all that and then remember it and 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 process it and then still be able to teach it? Well, you know, there's a conscious awareness and a conscious explicit memory. Mm. And there's also an implicit memory, yeah. an unconscious memory. And when I was in 1979, I was 24 years old and I was studying uh, oncology. I was studying dentistry. I was studying chiropractic, all three at the same time. And I had this opportunity to speak at this uh, conference on dentistry for TMJ, temporomandibular joint dysfunction. And nobody was really into it at that time. And I was focusing on that and studying that. And so I got these opportunities to lecture to dentists and dental you know, offices and stuff. And I was speaking at a conference, the Tri-County Dental Association meeting. And there was about 400 dentists there. And I was a student chiropractor at the time. I was 24 years old. And um, I was to speak in the afternoon right after lunch. So I get there right after lunch and um, I'm sitting there with an with a assistant nurses because all the room was filled. And the guy gets up and says, now we're going to hear from John D. Martini, student chiropractor, uh, a student at Texas Chiropractic College. And he's going to talk about TMJ. And I'm like, 
the people are going, what? What? Why are we listening to a kid who's not a doctor on TMJ at a con? What? The, how did this come about? And people got up, and seventy five percent of the people in the room started walking out of the room. And the guy came back up there and and hit this this glass thing, ding, 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 you know, and said, oh, hold on a minute. If you leave the room, you don't get credits. I said, um, the guy said, I didn't do justice to this young man, so I'm going to reintroduce him. He says, you all have heard of a gentleman named Harold Gelb and Nathan Shore and John Baldwin. They're the top three TMJ specialists in the world. They are the people that asked to put John on this conference. They said they had dinner with him at the doctor's club in Houston, and they learned more from him in one evening than they think that they learned from all of their education. Wow. And, and, and everybody's wow. like, going, what? <laughs> I said, so whatever it is, you're going to listen to this guy. Because the top people in the field are the ones telling you this is the guy to listen to. Now, I read every book in Houston, Texas on the topic for my own learning. And I started doing programs for dentists on that and became ahead of the field because nobody was doing that. And so when I got back up there, I said, you're probably asking, why is a student talking about this topic? And of course, <laughs> they're going, yeah, what's the deal here? And I explained to him, I said, when I went to chiropractic college, I specialize in the joints of the body, the manipulations and the articulation of the body. But the most significant articulation of this entire body is that one. Yep. The temporomanibular joint. That the thickness of a lens paper, any deviation of that and it's not working, it affects the entire physiology. And I said, and so you what you guys do is extremely important. And I wanted to know everything I can about that joint if I'm going to specialize in this. So I went down the rabbit hole and I started studying every book that was available in Houston on dentistry and TMJ and everything else. Not because I was wanting to be a dentist, but because I wanted to know about that joint and anything relating to it and the feedbacks of it. So I was supposed to speak for 30 minutes. All the other speakers gave me that afternoon and passed on speaking. They wanted to listen. And I did four hour presentation and there was a guy in the room that was a heckler, oh. a heckler. And he and he puts his hand up and he says, so where did you get that information? I've never heard that. And out of the blue, unexpectedly, a complete double page of Gray's Anatomy visually appeared in my face. I could read it verbatim off the page, the captions under the little pictures. It was vivid in my mind. And I, and I started reading the exact page number on this situation, you know. Yeah. And he just, he just went, and everybody started throwing papers at him and said, let the kid speak. Quit interrupting him. <laughs> and that's when I realized something. I realized something really cool. What we remember consciously is a small tip of what's there. And when all of a sudden there's an essential nature to come up with that answer, and it was when he asked that question, the information that was unconscious came right to the surface. Mm. And that was the day I realized that I have whatever goes into my eyes is there. 
Mm. But only we filter out only a small portion consciously and the rest of it's sitting there unconsciously until we need it. Mm. And then when we need it, it surfaces. So that was the day my speed reading went to new heights. Because then I quit trying to wonder if I got it. I just let it come in with photo photography. And then I tested myself. I got students ask me questions around that topic just to see what I knew and out came the information. I found out that anything that's really valuable to you will rise back up to the surface and percolate into the you know, explicit world the moment it's really important to get. And that's when I realized, man, I'm, I, there's no, I don't have to worry about what I get when I read. I'll just take it in when I need it, it'll be there. And so then I, I forced myself to cha challenge myself by doing classes every night on whatever I read every day. Because that way I would make sure that I bring it to the surface and retain it. I found out that the, the faster you give out information from the time it goes in, the longer the retention. Wow. And so I started wow. doing classes every night for three hours on the four and a half hours of whatever I read that morning. And it didn't matter. So I would pre-schedule the talks and have a list of books that I knew I was going to read in advance so I could do the dissertation on it. And I did that night after night, six and seven days a week. So that way I would accelerate my learning, test my explicit and implicit learning processes. And, and that eventually got up to, I, I read over 11,000 pages in one day. And, and I had the information ready for an oncology conference. So I'm, I'm absolutely certain we have way more capacity than most people realize, but you have to have a purpose from the reading. You have to make sure that it's something that's deeply meaningful to you. And you want to make sure that it has, uh, there's a, there's an, a purpose that serves some individuals. So there's a motive and something that's fulfilling at the other end of it. Mm. Then your brain picks it all up. I'm going to try that. <laughs> I'm going to, it's going to take me a bit to get it, but I'm going to try that. I think that's incredible. And that makes perfect sense. You talked about values in that and you are so mad keen on values. And I, I've done your values exercise, you know, many times, you know, when I've tried to refresh and stuff like that. And it, it comes up the same, reading, re research, teaching, learning, you know, the whole thing, it just keeps coming up as that. And, and if I have a big arch, overarching value, it's making a difference. You know, it's just it's trying to inspire people to make a better, better life. But you, you, do you believe that values is one of the most critical things that we can focus on? Every perception, every decision, and every action we take is value-driven. Yep. So yep. all of human behavior is derived from it. And every decision you make is based on what you believe in that moment, whatever will give you the greatest advantage or disadvantage, and you're making decisions accordingly. So your whole destiny is your hierarchy of values. So that's why I put on my website, drdmartin.com, the free complimentary private value determination process, because yeah. I'm absolutely certain that that's a cornerstone in the very beginning of anybody who wants to live an inspired life. That's the first step. Yeah. I remember you um, at one of when I was at one of your things. I think it was a breakthrough experience. I did I did that, and I'm pretty sure it was at that one. You were talking about that we are 100% loyal to our own values, our own set of values, you know. And that or maybe it was that. Maybe it was one of your books. I I can't, I've, I can't remember, but it doesn't matter. And it was you were talking about um, how. If, if you're having conflict with somebody, you know, you need to align, well, how do their values line up with your values, you know, so that you can feed each, feed each other's values. And the, the fact is that we're, we are truly loyal to our own 
and we will do whatever it takes to serve our own values. And I often talk about this with people. This is something that's really, really been instilled in me from you, you know, is that if if your values aren't going to align with mine, we're never going to make it until we can work out how my values serve you and your values serve me. Now, I reckon you can say it a stack better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, every human being has a unique set of priorities and set of values, things that are most to least important to them, a hierarchy of values that's fingerprint specific. And whatever's highest on their value, they're spontaneously inspired to fulfill. Mm. So just like that young boy who loves video games, he doesn't need to be motivated to do that. He spontaneously does it. I spontaneously research and write and teach. You spontaneously research, write and teach. You don't need to be motivated. No. There, there's not somebody going, Karen, it's time to get up, man. You got to, you got to podcast. You got to learn and read and study and teach today. Come on, man. No. You don't need that. <laughs> no, 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 no. You might need, you know, to do something other than that. But <laughs> I, I always say anything that somebody has to motivate me to do, I delegate. So yeah. I don't have to be motivated in my life. I don't want that. I don't want a motivated life, extrinsically driven life. Yeah. I want it to be calling from within. Yeah. So whatever's highest on your value, you're spontaneously inspired to do it. And the moment you take actions on that, the blood glucose noxin goes into the forebrain, activates the executive center, the prefrontal cortex, governs the amygdala, calms down the distracting impulses and instincts that most people run their life by allow you to strategically plan an amazing inspired vision and execute it. And you're on your way to being master of destiny instead of victim of history. And if you can see how somebody else in their highest value is helping you fulfill what you're doing, if you can see that by asking how specifically is them doing what they're dedicated to, helping me fulfill what I'm dedicated to. If you can't see it, you're going to to be resistant to them. You're going to talk down to them and try to fix them. They don't want to be fixed. They want to be loved for who they are. And who they are is a reflection of what they value most. Mm. My highest value is teaching. My identity is a teacher. But somebody else's value may be raising a child or children. Their identity would be a mother. Somebody else may be a uh, you know, gold medalist in, in uh, you know pole vaulting or something. Yeah. But whatever your highest value, identity revolves around it. Your purpose revolves around it. Your ability to learn revolves around it. So knowing that is crucial. And the most powerful question you can ask how specifically is whatever I'm doing at work helping me fulfill my highest value? I'll be engaged. Yeah. How specifically is this individual and what they're dedicated to helping me fulfill what I highest, my highest value? I'll be respectful. I will be a fair exchange. I will communicate effectively with them. And then if I can do how's what I'm doing to helping them. Now we have dialogue. Mm. If not, we have an alternating monologue. So those are the quality of our life space that quite the questions we ask. We want to ask how is whatever's happening in our life the people, the place, the things, the ideas, the events, the learning, how's it helping me fulfill what I value most? And if you can answer that and answer it over and over and over again, you won't have anything in your way. You're going to have everything on the way, not in the way. And you'll be grateful for your life. Yep. And that on the way and in the way is something I learned from you too. And I use it in all my sessions. I say, is it on the way or is it in the way? And people, that's profound. That actually is profound for a lot of people. They're like, oh, but oh. I never thought of it like that. Do you think we're born with values or do you think it's nature, nature, nurture conversation? The the values come from voids. Whatever we perceive as missing becomes valuable. Yeah. And we are, we have what is called uh, multi-generational epigenetically induced values. 
We have gestationally induced values during the nine months of gestation. And then we have values that are being tweaked and modified all the way through our lives as events occur. And so the composite of all that is leading to values. So we're born with a set of values, but it's constantly evolving based on our perceptions of nature and nurture. Yeah. Not, not the world outside. It's not the world outside. It's our perception of that world out there that makes the difference. Because one event out there can be perceived a heaven as a hell. A hell is a heaven, as John Milton says. So it's not the event. It's your perception of it. That's why William James, father of modern psychology, said the greatest discovery of his generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their perceptions and attitudes of mind. Yeah. If you change your perception of something, I mean, I've had people, I had a, a young boy. This is so funny. This young boy uh, shows up at this, this seminar I'm doing. And he comes up and he wants to run this story. You know, my mom abandoned me. I'm being rejected. Nobody cares about me. Nobody loves me. And da 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 da. And I, I, I said, stop. I said, stop. No, that, 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 I'm not interested in your, your ranting about how you've been a victim of your history. I said, what, what's, you know, you said your mother wasn't there for us. She abandoned you. Is that what you think? Yeah, I was an orphan. I said, you know how to use the internet? He goes, yeah. Well, you got a phone or we can look something up on the internet? He goes, okay. I said, get your phone out. Okay, look up famous orphans that were abandoned. He starts digging in there. We found a whole bunch of little, uh, you know, links. And then we found 700 of the most famous people in the world that were orphans and were abandoned. Sir Isaac Newton, Tycho Brahe, right? Clinton, Bill Clinton. I mean, these people, the names of all these people, and I said, listen, if you want to run your story and be a victim of your history, that's that's fine. That's your business. But let me explain something to you. You are one of the 700 greatest leaders in the world. You're in that category. Mm-hmm. All the greatest people that made the difference in the world started out like you. So if you want to use that as an excuse, that's fine. But if I were you, I would be grateful for the opportunity that you got to be in one of the top tiers of everybody across the planet. When he started doing it, and anybody he didn't see on that list that he knew, I said, let's look him up and let's look him up. And as he was doing this, in one hour's work, this kid was inspired, grateful, and just changed the, 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 the trajectory of his life just changed because his entire frame of thinking was that was in my way instead it was on my way. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, he now realized that he was a special guy and his parent, and he was grateful for his mom now. Grateful for the people that took over all the roles as surrogate moms. I mean, and then he then he broke the fantasy about how if my mom would have been there, he was thinking life would have been happier. Yeah. The truth is, his mom was bipolar and didn't feel that he was gonna she was gonna be able to do him service, so she gave him to somebody that would help him yep. because she almost drowned him. She forgot he was in a bathtub. Oh God. Filling oh. up. So she, when she realized that, she says, "I'm I'm not fit from this child. This child's special." and gave it to some other people. Once he got that, he cried and he went to thank his mom. And he says, I'm going to make sure I do something friggin' amazing in my life because of this. That's wow. the difference in attitude. Wow. Yeah. And when I did the breakthrough experience with you, that I remember that too, that, you know, being thankful for, you know, all of the things that we thought were 
Well, I don't like the whole victim mentality anyway, but, you know, all of the things we thought were injustices towards us, you know, or, or things that didn't work and when, you know, you were teaching, um, you know, say thank you, I love you, you know, to this person because they've put us on this amazing path now, you know, that we would never have had or, or probably would never have had. And it's, um, you know, you, you're describing that, that, that fork in the road point, aren't you? And, you know, I wonder what would have happened to that boy if he didn't meet you. Or, you know, I wonder if, I wonder if you were on the way and there was an, if it wasn't you, there might have been someone else, Do you, you know, that sort of, who knows? And it, we, we don't know. No. There's no way of knowing some of that. But, but you know, I'm a firm believer that it's the quality of your life based on the quality of the questions you ask. The questions you ask yep. make unconscious information conscious. And when unconscious and, and conscious are both conscious, you're fully conscious. Yeah. And I, I'm a firm believer in knowing how to ask questions. Anything you can't say thank you for is baggage. Anything you can't say thank you for is fuel. Yeah. So why would you want to go through life and not being appreciative? Why would you want to have regrets? Why would you want to be resentful to things when they are on the way, ultimately? They're helping you. You know, I, I uh, my dad, when I was nine, I, I went to my dad. I said, Dad, I want to buy a baseball and a glove and a bat. What can I do to earn some money? And he said, well, did you mow the yard? Yes, sir. Did you add the sidewalk? Yes, sir. Did you did do the hedges and clean the, clip the hedges? Yes, sir. Did you clean the flower bed? Yes, sir. Did you, uh, you know, tighten down the shale on the side of the house? Yes, sir. Did you sweep the garage? Yes. Did you do the shine the shoes? Yes. He said, son, I, I don't have anything else needs to be done. So if you want to make money, you're going to have to go to the neighbors and find things to do around them and see what you can do. So I went down the street, went down to the Evans uh, place, which is a neighbor's. And I saw an unruly yard and I knew I could clip hedges and weed. I knew I could do all those things. And I asked them if I could do that. And they said, how much? And I came up with a number and they said, that sounds fair. And I worked the whole day. I mean, I had blisters, bee stings, <laughs> sunburn, but I had, you know, money from that. And I went out and bought the baseball glove and bat. And my dad saw me, you know, putting a ball in my glove and carrying a bat and asking him if he wants to play ball. And and he said, where did you get that, son? And I said, well, I did what you said. I went to the neighbors and I started earning money. And he said, well, what did you do? And I said, I mowed, I edged, I clipped. He said, what equipment did you use? Well, the equipment in the garage. He said, son, I got to I got to educate you. If you're going to borrow the equipment on the job the, in the garage, you got to pay depreciation cost. I said, well, what's that? I said, well, if you every time you use it, you wear it down, it breaks down. And so he, he asked me what I did. And he said, well, you owe me like seven dollars and fifty cents. And I went, well, I've already spent it. And he said, well, you're going to have to earn some more and pay that. And then when you do that, you're going to have to pay some more. So he started charging me and make accountable. So I ended up doing that. And now I'm working more and making less. And I was like, ah. And then I saw this kid coming on a bicycle while I was pushing this mower one time. And I said to him, I said, hey, how would you like to make 50 cents? This is 1963. And he goes, sure, man. That sounds good because 50 cents was significant back in those days yeah. and uh, to a kid. And I, I said, all I got to do is follow this mower and mow the yard. I showed him how to do it. And he started mowing the yard. I got a guy to do edging, another guy to do sweeping and raking. <laughs> I got three kids to do it. I went and closed another deal while they were doing it. And I ended up getting the Mallows equipment and got three more kids. And I got the Zubrod's equipment, got three more kids. I had nine kids working for me. I was closing the deals, collecting the money, making sure they were trained, making sure they're doing it, paying my dad, paying all the kids, paying everything off. And I would net on a Saturday 
$45 US dollars after everybody's paid. Wow. Now that's that's equivalent of six to seven hundred dollars yeah. a day today. Yeah. So if you had a nine-year-old kid making six to seven hundred dollars a day, you'd probably let him sleep at home too. Yeah. So my parents, my my dad said, he says, you know, son, you, you know, you're very you're being a little entrepreneur. This is great. You're you're learning how to do this stuff. He said, but you one thing you're not doing. And I said, what's that? He says, you're not saving any of it. You're spending it all. If you spend your money, you'll work your whole life for money. If you save it, it'll work for you. So he got me these little blue folding coin collection systems and a piggy bank. And I started putting the coins in these things. And by the way, that piggy bank sits on the 52nd floor of my office in Williams Tower in Houston, Texas. It has never been opened since 1963. Wow. <laughs> it has the original coins that I put in there in 1963 because he never gave me a way to open the freaking thing. <laughs> and that's and that sits there as a metaphor to think long term. Yep. I may pass that to my next generation and they may pass the next generation. Yep. But then my dad said, now that you learn to save, I want to teach you the next lesson. I want you to buy your freedom, son. Because I was a learned disabled child and my dad knew that. Mm. And he wanted me to be street smart. And he said, the real world doesn't give you something for nothing. The real world means you got to say, you got to work and you got to pay and you got to save and invest. So he said, I want you to know what it's like to buy your freedom, son. The real world. I said, what's that? Because every time he talks to me, it's costing me. <laughs> so I said, so what exactly does that entail, dad? He says, from now on, I'm going to, I'm going to charge you for clothing, food, and rent, $7 and 50 cents a week, a dollar and you know, 15 cents a day, you're going to be paying me that to live here at this house. But with that, with that new bicycle you have, you can go anywhere you want. All I ask you have one responsibility, be home by nine o'clock at night. The rest of the day from four in the morning till nine o'clock is yours. You do whatever you want to do, go wherever you want to go. All I ask you to do, be home at nine o'clock. And I thought, cool. So I started riding my bicycle 35 miles in different directions, exploring. I knew every direction. I started hopping trains when I was 12 to different cities. Oh I started hitchhiking to different oh. cities at 13. And at 14, I hitchhiked across from Texas to California and all the way down to Mexico. So I, I started being an adventurer, and I can thank my dad. And so this challenge starting point my dad gave me was one of the most greatest entrepreneurial lessons I could have ever gotten. Thank you, dad, for being, for making me accountable at a young age, because a lot of kids never get that opportunity. No, they don't. And you know, the, your, your story, John, I feel this, I feel like we've got so many synergies. I wanted to play guitar and, and at seven, my parents bought me one. And then I said, at, at, when I was about 15, I want an electric guitar. And mum says, buy one. I said, well, I don't have a job. <laughs> get in the car. And she drove me down to the supermarket, said, get in there and get yourself a job. And I and I did. I went in there and I got a job. And then I was paying, I was earning $7 every shift, you know, $7 for a whole night of work and a whole day of work. And I took it down to the music shop, put a guitar on lay-by. I don't, I don't know what you call it in America, but, you know, where you're paying. Anyway. Yeah, and you, you paid off. So I... I ended up with a guitar and an amp, and you know what? I've still got that guitar and that amp, and I will never sell them, and it's kind of like your piggy bank. It's that, you know, I get it out and I look at it, and I think that taught me so much about, you know, being accountable and and, and 
you know, making my own way. And I had I had the freedom then because once I could play guitar and I could play in bands and God knows what, I was I was as free as a bird. You know, that was it is incredible. I love well. And, and speaking of freedom, now you live on a ship, and you're in Ecuador right now. And, and how does that how does that work? How fantastic is that? Well, you know, what is interesting, in 1999, I was reading the Rob Report, which is a magazine for, you know, wealthy people or whatever. And I I was living in Trump Tower and um, in, in uh, right underneath the Donald. We were on the 62nd floor. He was above us a bit. And I saw this Rob Report and I saw this advertisement of this condominium ship, the one and only and first in history condominium ship. I thought, that's cool. And since I was 20, I said, the universe is my playground. The world is my home. Every country is a room in the house. Every city is a platform to share my heart and soul. That's been my little affirmation. Because when I first got introduced to Albert Einstein, said, I'm not a man of my family, my city, my community, my city, my state, or my nation. I'm a citizen of the, of the world. Mm. And Epictetus wrote about that, about Socrates. I'm, I'm a citizen of the world. And Leibniz was a citizen of the world and many others. And so I thought, I always want to be world. You know, the, the world was home. I didn't want to live in a little place somewhere. I want to be global in my thinking. And so when I saw this, I thought that really does match who I am. And I'm traveling and nonstop speaking. And so going around the world and doing that would be really kind of cool. And I then, but it only had 27% occupancy at the time. There, you know, so I was going, ah, a little risky, you know, could may not could tie up my money or whatever. And so then I just kind of put it and folded it up and just kind of kept it on the side. And then 2001 came, 9-11, yeah. and my wife was out at breakfast when this whole thing went down in 9-11 day, and they wouldn't let her in back into the building because they were afraid that Trump Tower was going to be next, so they wouldn't let her in there. So she ended up hiring a private helicopter to illegally take her off the, off the street and take her to Philadelphia, and then illegally took a private jet out to LA and then off to Australia. And when I found out she wasn't going to Australia, and I said, she says, I don't want to be back in New York for a while. This is too crazy. Mm. I said, well, I'm not coming to Australia, but four times a year on my tour. So if I'm going to see you, we got to come up with plan B. And it just so happened that one of her best friends was formerly married to a guy named Mike. And Mike had bought two apartments on the ship. And so she said while we were talking, well, I was talking to so-and-so. And you remember that ship you mentioned? I have a friend that just bought it on that. And he's in town if you want to chat with him. And so I did. And the next day, as an anniversary present, I bought the condominium on the ship. And that was 20 years ago. In fact, tonight is the 20th year anniversary tonight. Oh, wow. <laughs> Congratulations. When I get off here, when I get off here, I'm going to an anniversary gathering because I'm one of the original people and they're having a special celebration for the original people. Oh. And uh, so that's how it started. Wow. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I've been living on this thing for all these years, but I travel a lot too. So I'm off and on, but yeah, but this has been home for 20 years. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I won't, I won't keep you very long. I'll get you off in a minute. And just speaking your wife, it was um, Athena Star Woman. That'll be very interesting to a lot of listeners. And Athena, Athena was one of the most amazing ladies I've ever met still to this day. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful, uh, talented, creative. Uh, amazing, caring woman. She used to be a singer and an actress. Wow. And uh, I'm currently dating a someone who's a singer and an actress. So I, I guess I have a, a fondness for that. But um, 
but she was that and she was amazing. And we were together for 14 years uh, then, but she ended up with a breast cancer and, and mm-hmm. prematurely passing on. Mm-hmm. But uh, when she passed on, you know, uh, people asked me, well, what's, do you feel connected to her? I said, yeah, I do. She sends me universal um, express bills from the universal spa. She's in the afterlife in a spa right now. <laughs> she loved going to spas. I'm joking, but, but um, yeah, she was uh, a Melbourne girl. Yeah. And we met in, at, a, at one of my seminars. She came to one of my seminars and it was kind of one of those instant uh, moments when we first saw each other. We went, okay, there's something's going, something's going down here. And oh. so we were together for 14 years. She's oh. an amazing girl. She's beautiful. She's Everybody speaks about her fondly. I know she's passed, but, you know, like when you talk about her in memory, people are like, oh, I loved her. I loved her. You know, so there must have been something extremely special about her. She was definitely a unique woman. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so it was interesting. We had somebody the other day, I would say two weeks ago, maybe not quite two weeks, uh, one of the ladies here on the ship was also a friend of hers back then when she was alive and still on the ship. Wow. And she said, you know what? I was digging through some old pictures. I found a picture and she sent me a picture of a masquerade party that they had on the ship. And there was Athena and I'd never seen that picture. Wow. So I, just by meeting up with this lady, I got to see a picture. I never got to, I wasn't there at the time. I got to see this amazing masquerade party. Oh, that's but, beautiful. Uh, she, she was an amazing lady. So, but she passed on, life goes on. And um, here we are 20 years, well, 17 plus years later. Yeah. Was what, what year was it? Was it 2003? Am I, or no? 2004. 2004. December 16th, 2004. Wow. I lost my sister in 2003. And I tell you what, she was one hell of a special person too. So must have been a, yep. must have been a, uh, heaven, heaven must have been blessed back then. <laughs> we, we used to go, Athena and I used to go on the Burt Newton show. You know, Burt's passed yeah, too yeah. now, I see. Yeah. Yeah. But we used to go on the Burt Newton show and he had this uh, pianist that would play and he would, he always had a sense of humor and always had a good spin on things. And um, so we used to go there in Melbourne at channel 10 Yeah, and we used to have a blast with Burt Newton a lot. <laughs> Fun memories of him too. Gee, I tell you what, the good old days we've lost them, but anyway, it, it is what it is. We've got to move on. Now I'm going to let you move on to your, uh, your celebrations. I feel a bit bad now holding you up, but I just want to ask the get off the bench question. What's the number one thing that people need to do to get off the bench and truly step into the life they deserve? Go and really, please, whatever you're doing in life, go to the my, my website, drdmartin.com, and go and do the value determination process. Yep. It'll take you 30 minutes of your time. It's going to ask you 13 questions. You want to answer these as honestly as you possibly can. Yep. And answer them again a week later if necessary, and again a month later, and really get clear about what is really what your life really demonstrates is important to you. Yep. And start prioritizing your daily actions. If you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, it's going to fill up with low priority distractions that don't. And if you don't give yourself permission to pursue challenges that inspire you, you're going to keep attracting challenges that don't. And start prioritizing and do the things that are really meaningful and don't do low priority things that devalue you. Delegate them. Surround yourself with people that would love to do the things you want to delegate and free yourself up to do something extraordinary. The real authentic you is based on your highest values. And the real authentic you is more magnificent than any fantasies that you'll ever put on yourself. 
Yeah. Don't compare yourself to other people. Compare your daily actions to your own highest values. Because if you put people on pedestals and minimize yourself or put people in pits and exaggerate yourself, you'll never be yourself. Yeah. And when you're not yourself, you get feedback from the universe that says, that's not who you are. That's not where your power is. Your power is when you're from your heart, authentic, in sustainable fair exchange with other people, caring and communicating in dialogue with people and helping them fulfill their dreams so you can fulfill yours. That's the key. So give yourself permission to shine, not shrink. And don't accept less than what you know in your heart you're here to do. Ah, oh, 100%. I absolutely love that. So you're sending people to drdmartini.com, do the values exercise, and we can follow you also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and all of those kind of things. So, uh, John, I have absolutely, absolutely loved this. I'm so, I feel so blessed that you've taken the time to spend with me and you just, you're just a beautiful soul, beautiful human being. And I thank God that you met that poor guy and he sent you on another journey because, you know, John D. Martini living under a bridge isn't, isn't quite what the world needs. The world needs exactly what you're doing and you've, you're impacting billions of people. And uh, I don't know, I just, I just think that's incredible. I know it's just normal because it's you living an authentic life, but um, how I wish more people could be inspired by that and and live their life and, you know, just make, I don't know, just just be happy. We only get one crack at this. We might as well just be doing what we love. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for the great questions. Great to be with you and fun. And we have a lot in common. I, yep. I had no idea. That's fantastic. We, similar journey. I know. I think I can't wait to talk to billions of people, but for now, I'll just do what I'm doing. But, <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you. Oh, guys, I absolutely love that. Now, Dr. John D. Martini has been one of my idols for so long. He has, as you, as you heard in the interview, things that he has said and things that he's taught me over the years have, have really stuck with me, in particular about the values and about is it on the way, is it in the way. He also taught me a thing about when I did the breakthrough experience about, you know, the traits in other people. We get annoyed with other people, but when we look at it, the traits that we're getting annoyed with, we also have so that we need to have some empathy for that and, you know, saying thank you, I love you, even to people that we believe have hurt us. It's just I absolutely love his teachings and I really hope you got a lot out of that. I, I don't know. I, it's, he's just such a warm, generous, giving man and the information he's got, the knowledge he's got is just is profound and it really hits you it really hits you in the right place and it makes sense he's succinct about it and you just kind of go yeah that makes sense and as for the books i'm going to start just i'm going to start whacking them out and see what i can do go to his website drdmartini.com and do that values exercise because that is fantastic. And when you really know what's valuable to you, that's what you do. I know mine's, you know, learning and teaching and I do that. And I tell you what, the difference it makes when you're doing what you truly value is unbelievable. It's fantastic. So please go do that values exercise and just see what comes up for you. So Again, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for joining me every week. Um, follow Dr. John D. Martini. He is absolutely amazing. And I will see you next week. See ya. Thanks for joining me. As always, I hope this episode inspired you. 
if you know somebody who's taken courageous action to create something that's making a difference for other people, let me know about it. Go to my website, kerenvaughan.com, tinker around there, have a bit of a look and send me a message. I can't wait to hear from you. And remember, you're worth it. Your unique talents and gifts need to be out in this world. And I'm so passionate about inspiring you to achieve that. So you've listened to this episode. Just say yes, make the decision and put one foot in front of the other. See you next week.